Keeping up with security issues across thousands of web assets without the right approach to web application security is a daunting task. Get ahead with web vulnerability scanning automation from NetSparker, a leader in dynamic and interactive application security testing known for its ease of use and accurate results. Detect a wide range of vulnerabilities in all legacy and modern web applications, address security bugs at scale by automating the confirmation process, automatically prioritize vulnerabilities, and assign actionable tickets to the right developers in their native workflows for rapid remediation. For more information on how to scale application security with ease, visit securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. Welcome back everyone to Paul's Security Weekly. Security Weekly Unlocked will be held in person this December 5th through the 8th at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista Hotel. We're excited to announce our first round of speakers that will include David Kennedy, Alyssa Miller, O'Shea Bowens, Marina Chiavada, Patrick Coble, Chris Eng, Eric Escobar, Kevin Johnson, and Justin Kohler. You can learn more and register by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash unlocked. And we've got uh, a lot of fun things in store, uh, getting ready to make uh, an announcement. So actually, although like last week, I have stuff to share internally. Soon we'll be sharing those uh, with the public as well. And I'm, I'm super, super excited. This segment is sponsored by Eclipsium. You can visit securityweekly.com forward slash Eclipsium, protect all your firmwares. Joining us from Eclipsium, of course, is Scott Shefferman, no stranger to the show. Uh, Yuri, uh, Scott is the principal security strategist there. Uh, Yuri was supposed to join us, but uh, could not make it because, you know, Black Hats, it's, it's a busy, busy time. If you're out there, uh, you should take the time to meet with people and, and do all the stuff. So uh, Scott's here to talk about how the stakes are raised when protecting the foundation of computing. Scott, welcome back to Paul Security Weekly. Hey, thanks, man. Always good to be here. It's, uh, you know, you can tell it's like super busy here in, in Las yeah. Vegas. You found a quiet. So uh, tell us about Black Hat, Scott. You're out at, at Black Hat, uh, which is pretty awesome. Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. Black Hat is, uh, you know, a lot of people are, you know, it's it's very sparse. Uh, it's almost like DEF CON felt 15, 20 years ago. Um, and which is great is, you know, you see a face, you know who they are, even with the mask on, you can see somebody and you can just like see them. And it's not like a sea of people you don't know. Um, the vendor area was uh, very sparse and minimal. In fact, there weren't even carpets uh, mm. on, on half the, the vendor area. So it's just kind of ragtag, you know, um, <clears throat> low key kind of vibe, lots of space to move around, very comfortable, not super exhausting like it normally is. Um, let's see, uh, the talks, you know, I heard everything's been good. So it's, it's, uh, you know, we've got the, the hybrid thing going on. So people are finding each other via hybrid or in person like we normally do. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, and now are you guys presenting at, at Black Hat or just at DEF CON? At DEF CON. Yep. Okay. Tell us about the, the talk you're giving uh, at DEF CON and you kind of teased it last time. Yes, yeah, it's a super exciting talk. In fact, it's, it's probably one of the, the, the talks that's getting the most talked about before the talk. It's on Saturday. And uh, Jesse and Mickey will be giving the class talk. Of course, they're the researchers that discovered BIOS disconnected, did the analysis, and uh, did some other cool things that you will have to wait and see on Saturday. I think it's 10 a.m. Track one on Saturday. BIOS disconnect is the name of it. If you're if you're trying to remember these things, but track one on on Saturday. Um, and it's uh, it's it's phenomenal research, but it's it drives to that same point that you said. It's the foundation of computing itself is literally just like getting the rug wiped out from underneath it and what's left is all this super insecure code these super old style bugs these super easy buffer overflows these uh, vulnerabilities in tls protocol that shouldn't be there 20 20 years on etc so it's it's one of those things where you say wow why do we why do we still have these same problems 
you know, from from major OEMs, from critical software at the firmware level uh, in the year 2021. How are we still doing this wrong? You know, so now do you, um, yeah. Do you, uh, I guess, uh, from a from the standpoint of most organizations, this is kind of a, a very very low level when a lot of them aren't getting the fundamentals right. But do you see this as a very high risk to a lot of orgs right now? Things like ransomware, maybe. TrickPot might be starting to use these kind of uh, exploitations at the firmware level. Yeah, that's well. That's kind of the question of the hour. Like, okay, you found a cool exploit, but is it something viable in the wild? Are attackers going to leverage? Like, which attackers would be likely to do that? What would the kill chain be? The initial vector. All those things go through your mind right away, right? Um, for this, yeah, it's 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 low level. If you're a Dell customer, this is a primarily a you know a Dell vulnerability in BIOS Connect, their feature at the firmware level. Uh, and if you're a Dell shop, then absolutely need to be worrying about this. Um, we've had people coming up this whole conference, like uh, the last two or three days, just saying, "I'm a Dell shop. I need to talk to you guys, right?" Because they want to understand the same question you just asked. So, um, if you don't know about the vulnerability, it's you know BIOS. Uh, Dell has this up update feature called BIOS Connect, and it's meant to be able to restore the operating system or uh, actually flash the the BIOS itself if you need to do an update or firmware update, and you can't do it via other means. So BIOS, BIOS Connect would be for like a user at home, for example. Um, I have I bricked my OS or something. I need to fix it. Hit F12 when you start up, and it takes you through the normal BIOS Connect update process. The problem is. That's fetching a binary from Dell support site, uh, you know, uh, uh, on the internet, and so you have this most critical piece of BIOS firmware that's going over the internet and finding its way into your uh, laptop at the firmware level, you know, not ring zero but lower than, and all of a sudden you have this um, interesting dynamic where if you can uh, manipulate that or attack that that system, you have a major vulnerability um, in a in a in a high impact one at that. So. It requires an attacker to be uh, in the middle, if that makes sense. So you can make a call to, you know, BIOS uh, support, whatever it is, uh, support.dell.com, uh, and you intercept that, and you serve up a different uh, URL, and you get a different binary. That the the problem is the BIOS Connect feature will process that, run it, and execute it uh, at the firmware level, right? So you have this situation where you have privileged code, where you can start doing all sorts of crazy things. Yes, there are lots of past exploitation afterwards. In fact, that's one of the main reasons people are excited to go to the talk is because this talk is going to be way more than just the research. You're going to get a live demo. It's going to be done on a secure core PC. Uh, it's going to bypass you know, things like Secure Boot and uh, BitLocker is not going to be able to have any say, anything to say about it. Um, in fact, there's nothing you can say about it. If you're an attacker and you're on that network uh, and you're in the middle, you can totally uh, abuse this. And being in the middle can be old school, like, you know, our poisoning, Ettercap kind of style. Uh, any attacker could do that these days on these massive flat networks. It can also be on these edge devices, like all the Soho routers at home, um, your VPN appliances that are getting, you know, rooted via remote code execution vulnerabilities left and right. Um, and then there might even be ways to do this as well over, uh, you know, DNS hijacking at the, the BGP poisoning level, where you can actually have a malicious binary being served on the internet that you own as an attacker as well. Um, and so this is this is kind of the new world we're, we're living in, uh, and the talk's going to go over like how do you go from okay cool expo or cool vulnerability to now let's see what we can really do. <laughs> you know what I mean? So a lot of people are really looking forward to it. I know I am. I'll be there, you know, front and center. This this is going to be an amazing talk. I'm I've been sitting on my seat waiting for this one for a little while. Do you see uh, Do you see some of the ransomware? Do you think this is our next evolution <laughs> of of how ransoms happen, uh, rather than? Uh, you know, double extort where you're ransoming and then leaking if you don't pay. Do you see this as being, hey, you better pay us or your hypervisor servers are now going to be a, a big worthless piece of uh, brick? 
and someone's going to have to come fix firmware. Do you see a big evolution kind of down that path from a, a ransomware standpoint? I, I can tell in the look in your eyes that this is partially a trick question, but I'm going to go with it. Because <laughs> here's, here's the thing. Like, the more, the more you uh, do instant response and you deal with these actors, the more you realize that they've locked, latched onto the idea that, that at the end of the day, this is just extortion. It's oh. just leverage. So whatever's going to give them the most leverage in the, most, the smallest amount of time to force you to a decision is the way they're going to go. And they have been going. That's why, like you see, double extortion. Not just double, but triple extortion now because you have the supply chain, your Micron, and now you're you're asking Apple for fifty million dollars, or you're you know asking Sony for money, for example, right? Like, there's lots of different ways they're finding to gain additional leverage in the same small period of time for which the negotiation or the the, the leverage happens, the extortion happens. So when it comes to firmware, there's two there's two angles there. The road divides into two. One, I can yeah, I can brick your device at the motherboard level. And even if you have your backups and your keys were stored offline and you know how to restore from backup, even if you have a stack of hard drives ready to go, none of that helps you. And if you have a critical device that's down, a medical device, a critical uh, infrastructure device, um, or, or an entire data center that's, that's you know, where the malware drops at the same time, and you brick that, you have, you, you know, it's an indefinite downtime. It's not like um, our restore time was going to be this week. It's going to be longer than that. So, um, so if you take like a destructive campaign like NotPetya, or want to cry, but like not pet you went after the MBR. Why? Because it's more destructive and that had destruction as its as its goal. Well, imagine this not pitch rooting around like it did and then bricking devices at the motherboard level instead of the hard drive level, right? It's it's not it's not just incrementally worse, it's exponentially worse from impact. The other side of the road is persistence. And the ransomware groups these days know all about persistence because that's what gives them the ability to either resell the same access to a third party later or to reappear later and re-ransom the entire environment. Um, and you know the access as a service brokers on the internet, on the dark web, they're the ones that are actually making the majority of the money. It's not the ransomware negotiators. So there's a high value placed to just the persistence mechanism, the ability to always be able to get into any organization for which you're at the firmware level. And um, yeah, that's, you know, where, I, I, that's where I really identify with it. I think there are groups out there that are looking at the destructive aspect. The conspiracy theorist in me says that they're trying to cover their tracks and they might use that to maybe cover their tracks. I think the groups that are highly and maybe purely profit motivated, if it were me as the with my evil hat on, I would ransomware them once, wait some time. Now I'm in the BIOS, like at any point in the future, I can just re-rent, like, hey, you paid once, how about you pay me again? Which is awful to think about, where, but they literally own the computer within the computer, right? And this is what we're where, talking where about, does, uh, the computer and the where computer. Where does nation state fit into that scenario, Paul? Uh, I think more on the destructive is where I would see nation states, although I truly believe, so let's go with my conspiracy theories, right? My, my tinfoil hat theories, that you're going to be selective about it and perhaps balance your portfolio that you want to have the capabilities to cause disruption to your adversaries but you also want to fund your own operations which could be some of the motivation behind nation state countries to the u.s to be able to fund their operations they're doing the ransomware extortion style attacks because they're using that money to fund their operations as well as gain that persistence for long-term long period campaigns and uh, non-attributable areas of Yeah, that's uh, the to me that's the China theory, right? That we know we speculate and know from history that they'll play the long game on that. Russia I think to a certain extent as well. You know, why why limit yourself to a, a one and done when you could play the long game? 
So, well, Paul, you mentioned something too, like the uh, the destructive aspect is um, interesting too, because I'm thinking back to all the IRs I did, where once once they they know that you know that they're there and you're in the eradication phase, right? The containment phase and the eradication phase, they take they adapt, they change their TTPs, they go for creds again, they run you yep. know all the cred gathering again one last time, so they have a, a hope to get back in. And it's a race against the clock. And one of the, one of the things we saw them do a lot, and like all the way 2016, especially 2018 and after, is do a bunch of diversion at the end, like scorched earth policy, like blow out things, hurt things, um, uh, DNS uh, amplification attacks inside mm-hmm. the network. Like it was back to like old school style. And I think if you think about like this, like what better scorched earth uh, mechanism can you have than at the firmer level? Right. Because yeah, I know. But in that, out, that begs a question, and I don't know if you're going to go through it. Uh, your researchers will go through it in the talk on Saturday. But I, I know when Larry and I were writing the book on WT54G routers, right? I mean, we we brick some devices. A lot of those, Larry, like were hardware. Like we we mashed the pins, right? I yeah, mean, basically I'm, to test that in 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 you know prove that theory that if you you could jumper those two pins yep. on the flash chip, if you mashed them. You were going to have a really hard time, like for a $40 device, probably just going to throw it out by a new one, right? Um, and, but, and nowadays, that would be super simple for me to fix. Yes. But yeah, in the day. Yeah, more, more yeah, yeah, evolved. better tools and more experience, right? You can recover from that. But also, Larry and I tested all the different methods to recover the firmware in its entirety, right? And there were certain mechanisms back then. Mm-hmm. We had TFTP. In, in other such things, you could uh, either JTAG and other devices that we've seen subsequently <clears throat> allow you to do that. My question, long way of getting to my question, is I've got a modern UFI-enabled, uh, you know, supported device, and that's the computer within the computer. If as an attacker I wipe that, uh, how do I, how, can I put that back? I, I've fortunately, knock on wood, not been in that situation where I've toasted the Eufy system on my motherboard where I need to rebuild that from scratch. Is that like possible? Is that hardware dependent? How does that work? So, so uh, I suppose anything is possible if you if you've written the right code and, and you know exactly what your intention and your path is, because you you could make it such that the 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 normal user, the victim. Uh, has a brick device for all mm-hmm. intents and purposes, yeah. uh, but as long as the device has power, I think you could probably figure out how to come back alive again later. But I don't know. This is such an outlier case. I can't imagine is, walking right? through how that would be possible. Yeah. It'd have to be intentional. To your point, yeah. How, how I've not had to rebuild. Like uh, I'm assuming that Yuffie sits on some kind of flash chip on the motherboard, and I could conceivably reconstruct that. You would like, ha- you'd have to utilize the manufacturer's uh, designated tools, which often require something like a JTAG or SPI access to the chip right. level. If they make those available, flash. do they make those available to you? I know, like with HP printers, for a the lot technicians, of times, they do. Yeah, a lot of times they yeah. for technicians, right? It's not I, when I buy an HP printer, for example. We talked about this attack on HP printers. Like, I could wipe the the firmware on them, and then as a consumer even a you know enterprise consumer i can i i can i rebuild that i don't think they give the customers the ability to rebuild some of that so so when we did table tapping uh when we did the trick bot research right the trick boot research i should mm. say and we we're saying you know, what would happen if a data center actually has majority or large percentage of their devices bricked at that level the uh, the the iterations that we went through is yeah either you can actually repair it physically on site with a proper technician and tools right, jtag right. etc 
which is an outlier case, but maybe for like a mission critical finance network that's, you know, a critical segment, you have that person on board, right? But by and large, the, the net effect of the impact here is if I want to mitigate this risk truly, this, this scenario risk, then the hot standby is really the only, yeah. you need a redundant motherboard. Like that's already yeah. built because you can't afford to, that's the motherboard. You have to put all the components on it. So you don't have time to do that anyway if it's that critical. Well, yeah, those of us so that have worked with that higher end rack mount uh, server blade technology, it's not as easy as taking a motherboard out of a PC based system that you'd use for gaming. Like, it's a lot more involved <laughs> to rip apart. <laughs> all that hardware at least in my experience it, right honestly there's dozens upon dozens of operating systems on those like you know 40 percent of them are running probably linux there's probably at least uh 10 or 12 like full-on like operating systems on those big server boards and the, the point being that if you i mean there's ways to jump around even across firmware like mm -hmm. so yeah you flash your eufy you feel like you did that restoration but i might be hiding over here somewhere else in the storage or, controller uh, right? storage control is a whole other control. computer in your in your computer right <clears throat> Because <laughs> like basically everything's a computer today. Yep. Uh, I mean, I, I started reading a uh, processor in your in your network card. I started reading Schneier's book, uh, "Click Here to Kill Everything," <clears throat> and I think one of the things that he articulated very well that like we all knew, but I think the way he articulated it really brings it to light in this context is that everything is a computer, right? Your dishwasher, your refrigerator, like it, your. Uh, refrigerator is a computer that keeps things cold right <laughs> your hvac is something that might heat and cool you know thing but these are your computers your, your password cracking ring is a computer that keeps things hot yes yes right. right but all these devices are basically computers that do that task and i mean even what so far is to in the car like you think you're pushing the brakes but it's really you're pushing the brakes and you're telling the computer to go to go uh, uh control the calipers right and that that was like wow that's really scary when we put it in with again something we all knew uh you know on the show and most of us listening knew that but to put it in that lens is frightening oh, uh, you add, you, go ahead who's that i was gonna uh, say you just you add uh, real-time operating systems on top of that where the firmware and the operating system are all kind of uh, runtime and, yep. and very uh, controlling that that becomes very very terrifying mm -hmm. i had a conversation last night at i think it was the the zero fox party or something and we were talking about um uh and i don't remember the who the researcher was but somebody discovered a way to use um um, um in, a, in an ai model to actually embed malware in the model itself so the model itself is able to perform malicious functions normally attributed to a binary that is malware and you're literally, you're, you know, it's not just adversarial machine learning here. This is a kind of a step up from that. It's not even adversarial machine learning. You're not attacking the mass. You're actually using the model to run malware out of it to attack. So, mm. so you talk about ah, firmware cool. in that case, like, you know, it's not just destruction or deletion or, or, or persistence. It's also could be data manipulation. Like you can literally affect the data running right in the memory. Right. And so that's really kind of if we want to look further, further out, I think that's where you're going to see persistence actually play out as an actual data manipulation rather than just uh, I have access kind of persistence. Uh -huh. You're so, hanging out with uh, Will and Moohacks, weren't you? I'm hanging out with a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them are, uh, I don't know if you can see my shirt, these guys. Woo-woo! <laughs> Woo-woo! <laughs> yeah, there, uh, some, I, I learn a lot from, from that group, um, as, as many people do, and it's, uh, it's, it's just been really enlightening when we start talking about firmware. You know, a lot of those conversations end up being what you might call like TLP red conversations because they're not ransomware where, uh, you know, 
you have to, or privacy is where you have to report, or your machine was bricked and you know you, you got bricked. Some of these things, when they're discovered, they're never reported because there's no, nothing driving the reporting for them, like for these types of instances. So mm. it, it really depends on like the vertical people are in, but we have people that are hyper aware of this problem. We have others that are like, what's firmware? Uh, you know, yeah. they're the same size organization, the same maturity. They have each, each of them has 25 people in their SecOps, but one organization's understanding of the firmware threat is like through the roof. And the other one's hundred percent ignorance uh, to it, right? Mm. Yeah. Lee, so I, I I was remembering that uh, a few couple of years ago it used to be popular. You know, could you, for a million dollars, could you go for ninety days without using a computer? And nobody was remembering that the washer and dryer and the refrigerator were computers. Mm-hmm. But it also, I was flashing back a conversation that was trying to happen in a meeting, and it couldn't. A friend of mine was really going on a tirade about how the BIOS has become so complicated and that we need to back back down so that's not the case anymore. And I was thinking, is that the battle to play in this case? Is it is it is to simplify or is there a better is there a better card to play to try and raise the bar? Great question. I, I feel like it's both, honestly. Quite quite frankly, I like the idea that the refuses. I like the idea that you had to kind of physically be there yeah. to do the damn thing. Um, but at the same time, the irony, like with this BIOS disconnect uh, discovery, is that's a feature designed to make this whole firmware management easier for organizations right. and end users. And you know, same thing with HDS boot. Like these things are designed to facilitate to the least com- common denominator of user to be able to actually get their box up and running um, mm-hmm. and deal with even firmware updates that are uh, vulnerability patching updates, right? To actually to be better secure. And then the yeah. irony is you have this 40, you know, this TLS bug and you have these buffer overflows that are semi-trivial. Um, and then to your point, what you can do once you're at that the UFI level, like the complexity of that space with its own network stack, like we've talked about before, et cetera, makes it very interesting. That's why people are going to the talk. It's like the, the vulnerabilities are interesting, but once you've gotten there, it gets really interesting, right? So um yeah, yeah, we've we've exposed bring the, up the right the right questions. <laughs> we've exposed the BIOS layer to not just the operating system but the network as as well. Whereas previously you did require physical access to be able to boot on some physical medium in order to affect change. But if you think about when if we had a data center, I mean even the cloud, someone's got the data center and we have to update the BIOS or the UFI on all of these systems, like you'd physically have to send someone there. And they would have to physically, you know, I guess today that would play out, maybe not boot on a floppy, right? But today I've updated BIOS. You plug into a a very specific USB port and you push a button on the motherboard. Uh, And on some of them, those are even accessible through the back. I don't even have to take the case cover off. I can just put Mm -hmm. the USB in a certain port and I can push the button. Although that does require... that's why you have a network stack. Yeah. On your UFEI now. Yes, because I, uh, I can't... I can only do that when, in this particular model, I, the system couldn't be booted. The yeah. board just has to have power, right? So I got to turn my power supply on, but I can't boot the system. And if it's in that state, I plug into a USB port and I push a button and it reads a very specific file from my you know, FAT16 formatted flash drive, right? right. And that does the BIOS, the BIOS update. Now on the newer board, this is just one option. The, yeah. You now have the option to do that over the network, full network stacks and UFI communication, bi-directional communication with the operating system. And that convenience has led us to this insecurity. So, yeah, you, you know, know, you mentioned um, when you have to actually go services and take care of this. Like, So it just made me think, uh, too, 
like one one of the demographics that we're really trying to educate, if that makes sense, and enable is the pen testing community. Like the 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 majority of us as security professionals at yeah. one point in our career have done red teaming pen testing have broken things. And ironically, that group is not really the ones that scope in firmware attacks and their engagements when they have uh, a limited scope engagement as a red team. So what we're trying to do is arm them with tools and techniques and capabilities so they can scope that in so you can start bringing the awareness because the, 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 you know, the purpose of red teaming has served the same function for, for a long time. And for firmware, we need the same function served for awareness so that the whole organization sees and believes and knows that they know irrefutably that these attacks are not only just possible, but even potentially likely and that the impacts could be grave. Right. So um, when you go to the talk or see the talk on Saturday at 10 a.m., um, wait for the end of the talk and wait for the resources that might show up on a slide. Uh, mm. So you know, so we can start mm. enabling this community. Do you uh, do you see tools that are available? I mean, obviously, Eclipsium is a great a great example of this level of protection, and and you're one of the few names out there, kind of bringing this awareness and also providing the protections. From a kind of a lower end budget standpoint or small business or people out there trying to figure out like, okay, how do I address this uh, with a limited uh, security staff or even knowledge about it? What kind of tools and, and resources are there to kind of get that conversation going and start looking at things? Well, the, the smaller organizations uh, in, in, a, in a large percent of the time are left out hang, hanging out to drive because they don't have the tools. And if they have the tools, they don't have the people to use them. Um, and they don't have, you know, the maturity and the integration and the velocity and the cadence that you need to really make all this kind of click in a way that matters. Meaning you're actually making these changes to firmware before the bad day happens, before the, the you know, the adversary actually uh, exploits them. And so they're, you know, by and large, like there's you know, no need to beat around the bush. They're kind of left out and hung to dry. That said, um, you know, I can only only speak for Eclipsium here, but like we have tons of customers that are s smaller customers. Um, and it, like I said, like the size in the maturity of an organization is 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 an independent variable from whether or not they are firmware active, for lack of better words, and they've prioritized firmware. So very small organizations can definitely leverage Eclipsium extremely well and cost-effectively to manage their firmware uh, vulnerability landscape, do patching, find implants, find supply chain, stuff like that. So I, I think there, there is an answer. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to pitch Eclipsium here, but that's why the, the platform was built, is it can scale up and down and, and left and right as well. It's very adaptable in terms of how you want to use the platform. Um, but, you know, a small organization trying to leverage like the open source project Chipsec, of which, you know, our, our founder, Yuri, is also the founder of, um, is, is very unlikely unless they happen to have the right person. And if they have that person, that means they're already super forward thinking about firmware. By that time, they've probably bought Eclipsium or another solution, if there is one. I don't really know if Solution does exactly what we do, but there are some other types of firmware solutions out there for sure. How do how do we protect these systems inside of a like a, a event? I mean, essentially, we've got double, sometimes triple, or more duty to take care of because we focus on the operating system in the kernel, but there are computer systems within the computer. How, how do we protect them? I mean, we've established that for convenience, we need that communication between the operating system and the other uh, smaller operating systems and computers. How do we how do we protect them? I mean, other than keeping them up to date, which is only going to get us so far. I mean, we translate that into, well, like I've patched all my stuff, but I, I still got owned somehow, right? Like, how do we protect yeah. 
you know, these, these subsystems? Well, so, yeah, so um, if I, I'll use an analogy almost like um, the antivirus community since everybody speaks that language, right, <laughs> which is, you have whitelists and blacklists, and we've been doing antivirus like that for, whatever, 30 years plus. Um, but more recently, you see things like AI, and you see uh, behavioral uh, understanding, and you see analysis, basically real-time analysis, whether that's you know a small algorithm that's doing it dynamically pre-execution, or if it's a, a cloud model. So when it comes to firmware, th- those analogies kind of hold up. But the difference is that in the firmware world, you don't have uh, um, a massive corpus of known bad malware, right? You don't have virus total for firmware. I mean, right. there's firmware, malware, and virus total, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's not a massive corpus. Instead, you have a massive corpus of known good firmware, and that's a lot of what, what Clipsium does, is understand that, you know, millions and millions and millions of firmware images that we know that we know are good because they have providence, because we never found a backdoor when we scan them and analyze them, when we do a static heuristic analysis, etc. And so now people can benefit from knowing that this hash is good as long as it is exactly this hash from an integrity standpoint. Um, but we, we, what you can't do is just just only rely on uh, hashing and uh, to know if something is good. Because just because it's signed and is what it says it is, and it comes from that vendor, doesn't mean that that vendor doesn't have an SSDLC problem and you don't have malicious right. code or that right. was used from off-the-shelf code over here. Like the, mm-hmm. what was it, the TCPIB vulnerabilities are in like 200 different network appliance manufacturers that were discovered yesterday or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. That, that one of source code goes out through the all of hardware dumb right mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to understand firmware whether it's actually malicious or truly vulnerable and that requires analysis and understanding and a little bit of tradecraft sometimes as well yeah it'd be interesting to think about from a monitoring uh perspective as well how do i know when there's a behavior that's indicative of firmware that make like you said scott maybe has a good good signature checks out hashes match but its behavior is not it's not right. Uh, are you guys working on like defining some of those like good versus bad behaviors? Yeah, we we we, we know of a lot, a lot of especially given uh, kind of where the where the team comes from. If that makes yeah, sense, like, yeah, yeah. offense kind of stuff at this level, we're very you know good at that historically. Uh, understand that like internal red teaming, doing things before bad guys do them, so we get better, right? So, um, but but when you know, as you know, like in the firmware world, like if you do a firmware update and it goes wrong, you do kind of run the risk of bricking a device. So one of the features people ask us for all the time is, hey, can you proactively update my firmware for me when you know it's vulnerable? You know, on the day you find it's vulnerable or it's been modified or it has an implant, can you just update it with the latest known good automatically? Yeah. And we're like, well, yeah, we, we, we actually have that feature. It's coded in there. And some of our customers actually use it in certain environments and then, you know, with the right kind of flow where you have a test lab first and you go mm-hmm. small percentage of the uh, real estate and then you roll it out to larger ones. But you would not just want to have that feature kind of like automatically in there as an easy button, because if you do that, you could really hurt things because the firmware world is is very tricky. And, uh, you know, the hardware world is tricky as well. So you have all these um, counterfeits and you have less, you know, low tolerances coming out of uh, China on certain chips now because of uh, the supply shortage and the increase of velocity. They're trying to come up with chips. And all this leads to this world where, like, it's, it's not a known known where this model with this image is going to result in a good experience. You know, same model, same image on two different devices. You're going to get potentially two different results. And when you scale that kind of unknown, it's it's a tricky problem. But, yeah, there, there's there's ways to do these these kind of things. Uh, but, but, I, but the real truth, though, if I could be so blunt, is most of the problems are adversaries hitting known vulnerable um, ex- vulner- exploitable vulnerabilities for which there is a patch. So yeah. not not O days, but like when there is a patch. The problem is that just like VPN appliances, uh, firmware is much like that, where organizations go months or years or they literally never patch it. 
And so why would an adversary worry about being crafty when it can grab something off the shelf and exploit exploit something very easily when their exploit's been out for you know months or years? Yeah, and I think the, the element, uh, elephant in the room is the operational risk when you're talking about updating firmware is higher hmm. than your regular operating system. Because if, I mean, if you're in an op, in fact, I was did it yesterday, right? Operating system, it was updating and then the system lost power. You can recover from that, right? Like it's, you, you, it's fairly easy to recover from that when you're talking about the operating system, uh, Linux or Windows. If it's firmware, there's not because you're copying data directly to the flash in off times. And that's why we always get those, you know, the warnings of, you know, do not let power, you know, and even when we're updating a modern computer system and we're updating firmware, I think those of us that have been in tech for a while, we still cringe. We're still nervous because of that. The operational risk is higher because I could brick my own device trying to protect it from attackers who maybe want to brick my device, which is the irony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> indefinite catch 22 there yeah there, there's other ways too like if you think about firmware as um as as a problem space with with vulnerabilities that can be exploited to great extent like with great impact one of the things you think about is like what direction the attacks actually come from so they can come from supply chain like we we're just talking about right with the la- latest set of vulnerabilities they can come in the form of a vulnerability or a backdoor or an implant or default you know, username and passwords that are burned in. Like, There's lots of different ways threats arrive via firmware to the device for which now the device is vulnerable. But firmware also arrives from, let's say, the operating system, like in the case with TrickBot and TrickBoot, where you can get a spear phishing attachment, open that, open that DocX up, and all of a sudden, before you know it, your firmware is implanted or bricked, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do you, how do you, like you're asking the right question, how do you prevent against that? Well, yeah. Hopefully you have a super good next-gen antivirus and email filtering and, and no insider threat and, and all of your security stack meant to prevent the operating system is working on every given Sunday. And we know that's never the case and that mm-hmm. Microsoft itself is impossible to even secure a number of uh, vulnerabilities that come out just on the OS level code. Right. So um, so firmware to protect it, you have to think through all these multiple vectors to understand if this is truly a critical device, protecting it is not as simple as just patching it's 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 all that layered controls that you and i are already familiar with uh but 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 protecting the firmware right from it so it's not an easy challenge but that's that's literally why we you know eclipse took that shines on is because nobody else had really figured that out and um and it's not a it's not a binary oh we have the solution it's not a magic bullet right it's hard work it's it's a lot of automation it's front loading um, you know understanding firmware images that you're scraping from hundreds of websites like it's not easy right there's no one company that can actually just do this on their own even if they wanted to right well yeah and you know yuffie is also part of a a consortium we did some interviews with um folks from megatrends and ami and it's a consortium and i think the perception when we have these types of conversations scott is that the folks that are basically developing the standards and the code that represents our modern BIOS and subsystems today don't care about security, which is act largely not the case. Those folks very much care about the security and integrity of of these systems. Do you work with some of these working groups um, to, to help improve their, I think both, not necessarily their knowledge, but their awareness of threats? Because I think they'd be yeah, open no, to we- that. We work with a lot of groups. Um, wh- one of the one of the things we're involved with is the uh, the NIST uh, CCOE, the you know Center of Excellence, I guess is what that stands for. But specifically, solving for like on in this case the supply chain aspect, right? So 
us, mm-hmm. RSA, Dell, HP, um, I think uh, uh, Seagate might be the, the, the last vendor there. Uh, we're trying to figure out, like, if I discover something operationally that's that's busted or vulnerable or implanted and malicious, how do I flow that information back up the supply chain? Yep. And so that the now the OEM at the platform level can say, look, all of my customers globally, we have a problem here. This is what we need you to do, right? So how do you action operational awareness and discovery back up to the supply chain? So it's also part of what you hear about with the S-bomb, or if uh, mm-hmm. I'll show you a picture of our key change this year, which is the F-bomb, which is always a big hit when people can drop the F-bomb keychain. I will get you guys some of these. Wait, can you see that? Oh, F-bomb. Nice. Oh, there it is. Oh, oh yeah. Nice. Firmware build. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's, not, it's not just the Dells and HPs of the world. Their BIOS comes from oftentimes at a company like American Megatrends or uh, Phoenix, right? The ones that you remember seeing, the splash screens and the, you know, back in the day, they're largely responsible for supplying that that code to the OEMs who are then putting that in all of the different uh, hardware and and subsystems. The first time I learned that was, I think it was Dan Farmer gave a talk at DEF CON probably 15 years ago now, or 12 years, something like that ago. And he did a, a short assessment of all, you know, all, all the the manufacturers and where the code came from. And I think yes. it was like ninety five came from Taiwan, another five percent from like China mainland. And the, you know, he was looking at baseboard management controllers, right? The, the IPMI protocol, and those are complete. Like, there's no difference between that talk he gave in 2012 and, and today. They're all mm. busted. Like, even <laughs> large OEMs like Nvidia had, you know, nine CVEs on their baseboard management controllers via IPMI protocol that some customers were putting uh, exposed to the internet, which is how those CVs got discovered, right. luckily by a researcher, not a nation state. And that's on a DGX 100 box, which is a 250,000, you know, uh, quarter million dollar device designed for the next generation of AI. It's like eight, eight cores in a box kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. At four or eight, I don't know what it was, but it's, you know, how that's, are we still doing this, right? Like, I don't know if these organizations- That's just the stuff getting I, looked at though too, right? Like. Those are those are just the small bits that that researchers are spending time on that uh, manufacturers or, or people like yourself are are diving into. That's not even touching things like you know SSDs. We've got a whole Opal protocol, a SED protocol, uh, access into the firmware on hard drives via the OS. Like mm. there's there's just there's a ton of stuff that is not even looked at outside of of the the stuff making the news. So this is uh, not going away anytime soon. Yeah, I, I used to have a different life, and about 16 years ago, I dealt with a large uh, OEM HDD manufacturer, and mm-hmm. they were implanted at the firmware level. And the, and the reason why the the adversary, which was a nation state, chose to do that is because they know that they knew that at that time only drives of this size and configuration would be only be the ones bought by this organization, right? And so because of that, it was only a small run of drives at a very large capacity that ended up in a certain data center or two or three. And the the mission was successful. It ran for I can't remember months and months before it was discovered. But it was it was an eye opener. And this was 15 years ago. Do we think they're not doing that now during a global trade war and a chip shortage and everything else going on? Like, of course they are. Absolutely everywhere. <laughs> Most of these vulnerabilities, I don't I don't believe that they're bugs or overlooked code because of a poor SSDLC. I believe a lot of these things are probably there for a very good reason. And the, 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 what people don't understand is like, if you take a snapshot in time, that's one view of the universe. But over the continuum of time, there's always these vulnerabilities on any given day. And that is the name of this game. 
it's it's the ability to continuously understand this and get ahead of it. Otherwise, the bad guys take advantage of that fact. Like they're always going to get in on any given day if there's always these back doors in the form of vulnerabilities. Well, I mean, sometimes they're there for reasons. I don't know oftentimes if they're good reasons. I mean, you know, conspiracy uh, in espionage could be a, a reason, right? Why it's there. And, <laughs> Maybe and not a good reason. Certainly that I'm certain that happens, right? Oftentimes it's the developers that, that put it in there and either they forgot to take it out or that was just poorly implemented, uh, you know, reason why some of these back doors were, were put into place. Or they yep. were pushed to get a product out or code out in mm -hmm. a short amount of time and they needed a way to hot fix, hot patch and continue that update process because, you know, this is a capitalist environment. They have deadlines, they have products to ship. And sometimes that is a business risk decision that happens maybe a bit too much, but that, that is kind of... That would never happen. You put pressure on your third party because I need that, that web server code that I'm going to embed in my millions of embedded devices I'm going to sell and we're ready to go to market and you end up with things like Joel's backdoor. Which is a horrible reason to have a backdoor. <laughs> it was like the way the the web interface communicated with with the firmware, and so there was a, to your point, Scott. Right, there was a reason. It just wasn't a very good one from an architecture. Mm. You know, I, I don't even think certainly security architecture was flawed there, but in software design and architecture, it was it was grossly flawed and negligent. But like Shadowhammer is a great example. Like mm -hmm. their aces goes. Bad guys get their cert, sign the firmware, and it goes right to your firmware. And you're like, you, you as a victim, you don't even know that's happening. You have no means of seeing that happen. You have no way to get ahead of that. You know that was not in your tabletop exercise before that came happen. Uh, that campaign uh, un un unveiled itself, right? Like it's just it's so frustrating. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, any more questions for Scott? Scott, any anything else? Yeah, I have something. Yeah, go for <laughs> so it. So I, I just ran in uh, to these guys on the way down here to find a quiet space. There's specific hackers, you know, 101, you get it. Um, and uh, I met a gentleman named Marco who's, who's, who's running point on that. Uh, they're out of San Francisco, but they do the whole West Coast. And you know, if there's one theme for Black Hat this year, um, just like we had our suite upstairs at Eclipsium and people are learning, up, you know, literally soldering and learning the value of understanding a, a, a you know, a PCB board and, and, uh, and, and just getting a feel for it. You know, a lot of young folks coming through, like there's one theme on everybody I've talked to this entire conference, which is the extreme need to grow a new generation of people that are aware and understand these foundational kind of computing concepts rather than coming out of school and just having memorized at a very narrow field, certain, uh, knowledge, right? So we're trying to provide this wisdom framework for, for kids. So they don't just like, um, have the knowledge and watch all the YouTube videos and now they pass the hacking exam, then we don't understand these problems, right? Which is like what your show is so great at is, a, is exploring the problem so people can understand it. So Pacific Hackers, and there's a whole bunch of other ones, uh, talking to woo-woo folks that, you know, there's this massive drive right now to mentor people and bring them into, uh, into this field. And it couldn't happen at a more uh, important time. Um, and it, it, you know, it's also helping uh, bring a more diverse group into this field, uh, both in terms of you know sex and um, uh, all different walks of life are just coming into this field finally. So we're doing it right, I think. And I just feel like this year is—it's been a theme for the last twenty years, but like this year is for some reason it ends up being—it's this conference has been very human. It's been like, how has COVID been for you? Like, 
how has it been to secure environments during COVID? Like, it's just like a very human experience this year. It's not about the tech and the uh, it, nearly as much as it's about like all of us bootstrapping our, our entire community again from the ground up uh, new, you know, going into the next 20, 30 years. So fantastic. Scott, thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to see you guys. <laughs> yes, can't wait to in see person. you as well in person. Yeah. For folks yes. who want to learn more, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash Eclipsium. Stay tuned. Coming up next, the security news for this week.